Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, We Believe in the Godhead. Recently, we've been considering together on Words of Grace scriptural concepts that we consider to be non-negotiable. That is, ideas that we consider so important We do not entertain notions to dispute or argue against them in our church bodies. As we said two messages ago in a message entitled The Importance of Non-Negotiable Truths, these doctrines often find themselves in a church's articles of faith or statement of faith. And each of those statements generally begin with the phrase, We Believe. You find we believe statements in the Word of God. In Acts chapter 15, after Pharisees taught the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved, the Apostle Peter issues a statement of faith, as it were. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. And there are other statements in the Word of God that are believed to have been taken from we believe statements in the early church. For instance, great is the mystery of godliness, that statement regarding Christology from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, begins with the words, without controversy. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. But that phrase, without controversy, actually can mean confessedly in the original language. So that's something that Christians confessed and professed. That's something that they believed, something they held to be true. That wasn't negotiable. That wasn't up for discussion. It's fine to explain it, and it's fine to answer good, well-meaning, and sincere questions about it and other concepts. But again, it's not up for discussion in the sense that we're trying to figure out what we believe about that subject. Simply, it's that which is without controversy, that which we profess and confess. Now, of course, these articles, when we think about articles of faith, vary from denomination to denomination. There once was a time in church history when both doctrine and practice mattered so much that groups would fall out of fellowship with one another over these concepts. They would be friends. They would consider each other Christians. But inner church fellowship was limited because they held these things to be very important. As the prophet Amos said, can two walk together except they be agreed? Can you and I walk together in closeness of fellowship if there's a disagreement? Well, we're not going in the same direction. We're not on the same pathway. And because of that, we can't walk together except we be agreed on things that we consider to be very fundamental. Today, Americans are generally apathetic on these issues, wanting more to be entertained than think, and things are far more ecumenical. To be clear, this isn't to say that other types of Christians aren't really Christians, and it's certainly not to imply that they're not saved. We just disagree on core issues, which is a hindrance to fellowship. Last week on Words of Grace, we considered the non-negotiable truth of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And without Jesus' resurrection, there's no reason to believe He is who He said He is and who the Apostle said He was, and there's no reason to believe that we're saved. We are of all men most miserable if Christ be not risen. Our preaching is vain and our faith is vain, but praise God, 
as we shared with you last week, the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that declared him to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, validating everything he said and vindicating every claim that he made and that the Word of God makes about him. Today, we want to begin a basic consideration on the standard articles of faith, one at a time, as found by Primitive Baptist Churches in Alabama, my home state, and these will be the same with most Primitive Baptist Churches throughout the country, and I would even say most historic Baptist churches before our modern age of change. Now, I'm sure many people listening to me on the radio today are Baptists. You're listening to a Baptist on the radio. It might surprise you to know that what I share with you in this series reflects the common majority Baptist thought on theology and ecclesiology from church history but not what Baptists hold to commonly today. So if these things are new to you, please understand that they're not new to Baptists. In fact, this is the historic perspective that Baptists had. And I would encourage every Baptist in our listening audience to study the history of Baptists in our country and in Europe and learn what our forefathers believed, and see as you dig into Scripture if what they believe was biblical and scriptural, and if so, if their views aren't reflected in today's churches, what that means. Because I think if their views were more correct and the average Baptist viewpoint today was wrong, then going back to what we once believed is the solution. Again, as we shared with you the last two weeks, we are to buy the truth and sell it not. When you find something that's true, well, you should pursue it with everything that you have. The truth shall set you free, shall make you free. In this series, we're going to conduct a survey of what doctrines our forefathers considered so essential that they would put them in writing as a founding document of local church bodies. So this will be a study of Scripture— Articles of faith are derived from Scripture, and if there is something in our articles of faith that are not biblical, then our churches need to vote to remove them and amend them. They answer to Scripture, as we will see on next week's broadcast. This will be a study of Scripture, the articles of faith again being derived from such. It will be a study of history, as we will look at the statements of faith of two churches in Alabama that date to the 1800s. It will be a study of doctrine, because the Articles of Faith deal with doctrine, and it will be a study of ecclesiology, as the Articles of Faith commonly deal with the doctrine of the Church, who can be members of the Church, who are the administrators of the ordinances in the Church, what the ordinances are in a local Church. We'll see what practices our churches and historic Baptists consider to be the most crucial. I've set before me two articles of faith, that of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, founded in 1808 simply as the Baptist Church of Christ at Flint River, and Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church, founded in 1868. These are very similar, but a bit distinct in some areas, and reflect what you generally find in statements of faith of our churches and historic Baptist churches all through the Southeast United States if you go back to the time at the founding of these churches. 
Now, just a little bit of history that we won't share with you every week, but it's important to share with you this week as we introduce these two statements with you. Flint River Primitive Baptist Church is the oldest Baptist assembly in the state of Alabama and was formed as settlers migrated south within the Mississippi Territory into what we now call Alabama. In fact, this church predates the official founding of the state of Alabama, its organization into an official state of the United States. A group of settlers formed a Baptist church in October 1808 in the home of a man named James Deaton in what we refer to today as Killingsworth Cove, and that congregation would eventually acquire a log meeting house on a parcel of land beside the Flint River in 1809, hence the name Flint River Baptist Church, or today Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. Her articles of faith come from the Elk River Association, And history records that the churches of the Elk River Association in Tennessee were grandchildren churches of the historic Sandy Creek Church in North Carolina, the oldest church there, and a very historic congregation as well. That's a mother church, Sandy Creek, to many Baptist churches of history throughout the southeast United States. Sandy Creek was more of a revivalistic separate Baptist church in that day, and this would be in the 1700s. It was founded by Shubel Stearns, a man who was Calvinistic in his theology, that is to say he believed in the doctrines of grace, but he was also revivalistic, being influenced by the movement following Whitfield, and so he would go publicly preach. He baptized hundreds and hundreds of people in his ministry. He was a very active, famous minister that you can read about in American Baptist history. Another faction of Baptists at that time were the more staunch regular Baptists. Both of these agreed, in general, on the doctrines of grace. The separates held to some distinct thoughts not reflected by earlier particular Baptists or those who came later, such as the existence of nine ordinances instead of the traditional two ordinances, like the regular Baptist and as primitive Baptists believe today, Eventually, those two factions came together in what was known as United Baptist. And when Flint River was founded, history reports that she was considered to be a United Baptist church at her founding. Baptists had smaller associations in that day, I should point out, and no national convention, so it was much more loosely organized and regional than it is today. In the 1830s, the label primitive was added to the title here at Flint River to indicate that in a era of change within the Baptist faith, Flint River stayed true to the founding practices and principles that she was founded upon in 1808. That's basically what it means to be a primitive Baptist. It means that you're a Baptist of historic thought. You're a Baptist of antiquity. The other statement of faith that we'll look at is from Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church, where I was raised. This church is in Westover, Alabama, in Shelby County, Alabama. And these articles of faith are more common of the Baptists from the mid-1800s. They're still very similar to that of Flint River and the Elk River Association, the Flint River Association going back to Sandy Creek, but not quite identical in the wording. This church, Ebenezer, was founded after the Civil War, and her first pastor was a former soldier turned county commissioner and ordained minister named Joshua M. Dykes. 
That's quite a bit of crash course history, but I wanted you to know the backstory of each of these historic congregations. Again, one from 1808 and one from 1868. Both of these statements of faith begin with the single most important doctrine to consider from the Word of God, affirming a belief in the God of the Bible, the three-in-one living God. Flint Rivers Articles of Faith, Article 1, we believe in only one true and living God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And then Ebenezer's article, we believe in one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So you'll notice how similar these are. They affirm the same belief, a belief in the true and living God, the God of the Bible, all Other doctrines are built upon this doctrine. Without this doctrine, nothing else we do in church or really in life matters. God exists. And you'll also notice how expressly biblical these two affirmations are, as we'll see in a moment as we turn to the Scriptures and begin to defend this point of view, this perspective, from the Word of God. After all, these articles are a mere collection of what we believe the Bible to teach. If the Bible doesn't teach it, the article is an error of men and must be discarded. Let's look at how these articles of faith agree. First of all, we believe in one true and living God. Both of these express the belief in the one true and living God, and both of these articles communicate very clearly that God is a trinity, a triunity, of the Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Spirit. How these differ, though they don't disagree, Ebenezer's statement includes these three are one, and Flint Rivers' and Flint Rivers' statement, it includes the word only. So when you combine this, you learn that Baptists believed in only one true and living God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That is a sound statement and we affirm it. We believe in only one true and living God, the Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So let's go to the Scripture and defend this point of view, this idea, this affirmation that we believe, that we profess, that we confess, that we defend, that we're not ashamed to say in front of other people that we believe in the one true and living God, we believe this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one. Let's find this from Scripture. First of all, the fact that there is but one true and living God. Months ago, we recorded a radio broadcast in defense of God as the only God, the only Elohim. And the reason that we did this is because the most popular Bible software in the country, the most influential, the flagship, as it were, of Bible software, has begun producing resources affirming the heretical notion that God is the chief Elohim or the chief God who rules over a council of lesser deities. And try as they might to say this is not the case, it is very much paganism, it is very much polytheism, and it smacks of Zeus ruling over Olympus. That's simply not the case. God is the only God in existence. In that message, we reminded you that there's no God before him, 
There's no God formed after him. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He alone is God. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that broadcast again, because it's important and you need to be equipped on that subject because of this push among some so-called Bible teachers in that direction. But this phrase, one true and living God, is actually a citation of the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. God is the living and true God. He's the one true and living God. To give you the context, we're jumping into the middle of a context here. Paul said in verse 3 that he remembers them in his prayers and their work of faith, and he's thankful for them. And he says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. These people were chosen of God. Election is a Bible doctrine. And then he says, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So that's the context of that statement. But notice, they serve the true and the living God. This church at Thessalonica was a very evangelistic church. They had sounded out the word of the Lord in great regions around them so much that the apostles didn't have to go sound out the word of the Lord there. And this all began with the election of grace before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, that election was confirmed and manifest in the fact that the gospel came unto them in power, and then they began to spread that gospel abroad. They turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10 also use these two words in connection with each other, the true and living God. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Jeremiah 10, 10. Did you notice where we find those two titles of God, those two descriptions of God given? The Lord, and that's all caps, meaning it translates from the Tetragrammaton, the four-consonant name of God in the Hebrew language. This comes into English as the word Jehovah. Jehovah, the Lord, is the true God. He is the living God. Jehovah is the true and the living God. The phrase living God was a very common phrase in the Old Testament, and it juxtaposes God from the false dead gods of the pagan nations around them. If you want to Take a concordance or maybe a Bible app or go to blueletterbible.org and look up the phrase living God. You'll see how common this is. This phrase begins its usage all the way back in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy to be specific, and it goes through the minor prophets. So the usage of this word dates from Moses all the way through to the minor prophets. Also in the New Testament, when the Apostle Peter professed Christ, 
in Matthew chapter 16. We recently conducted a series on that passage as well. He referred to Christ as the Son of the living God. The phrase true God is less common, but also present in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus himself used that title for his Father in John chapter 17 and verse 3. In John 17, 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What is life eternal, you might ask? And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. God is the only true God. And so from the Bible we learn that God is the living God. God is the true God, and so it's no surprise to find 1 Thessalonians 1.9 put both together. As reflected in the statements of faith that we shared with you, we believe in the true and living God. But did you notice that word one in the articles of faith that I shared? As Baptists, we believe in only one true and living God. There is one true and living God. There are not multiple gods. Now, one of the fastest growing religions in the world and in our country today teaches that if you obeyed their religious tenets and you joined their religion, then you can be a god after you die. But I have news for you. There's only one God, and there will always be only one God. We do not become gods through religion. We do not become gods at death. Nor was our God once a man who became a God through religion. He's from everlasting to everlasting. There were no gods before him. There will be no gods after him. But referring to the exclusiveness of God, Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 8, give us a couple of great statements along those lines. And I would just encourage you to read this run of chapters in Isaiah. They're full of statements about the true and living God versus the false idols of this world that are dead gods that can do nothing. They don't hear, they don't move, they don't answer, they don't act. They certainly don't bless and they don't judge because they're inventions of men. Isaiah 44 and verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Now that's interesting. You've got the Lord and His Redeemer. What do you think is being communicated to you there? Well, His Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. What does first and last remind you of? If you're a Bible reader, it ought to remind you of Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is the first and the last. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he is he who was alive and was crucified and died and yet lives again. He is the judge of the quick and the dead, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God. I am the first and I am the last, but listen, beside me there is no God. Beside Jehovah there is no other God, there's no other deity. He's exclusive. Verse 8, fear ye not, neither be afraid, have I not told thee from that time and have declared it, ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. God himself says, I know of no other gods beside me. God alone is God. And so this statement, this we believe statement, we believe in only one true and living God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And as we will see in just a moment, these three are one. So all of the other gods of this world are either figments of imaginations of men 
or outright creations of men's hands if they have a physical form like an idol or a statue or an image, something that is worshipped. Lastly, these three, Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Ghost, are one. We believe God to be a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this is expressly biblical. We emphasize this often on words of grace, particularly in study of the Incarnation. I intentionally speak about this subject at least once a year. Now, first, I should point out, and this will be obvious in studying Article 2, which has to do with the Scriptures, but it's obvious as the nose on my face that Baptists of history use the received text and not the critical text, as these articles verbatim cite 1 John 5, 7. Guess what? Sound theologians throughout church history also cited the text. Why, then, is it not in modern English translations of the Bible? Because it's missing in the critical text, which are produced mainly from two ancient manuscripts that are obviously corrupted in that they disagree with each other in 3,000 places in the four Gospels alone. You're telling me those are the better manuscripts if they disagree in thousands and thousands and thousands of places in the four Gospels alone? Now, the old saying goes, they can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. These can't reflect the correct reading of Scripture if they disagree with each other in so many places. Lower critics in today's time, many of whom are higher critics in disguise, opt for that family of manuscripts so God's people are robbed of First John 5, 7. This verse that says, these three are one. And we'll come back to that concept next week on the broadcast. But God is unchangeably and eternally Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one. First John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Matthew chapter 28 tells us to go and to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so Word and Son are used interchangeably as we describe the Trinity, and at the baptism of Jesus— the Trinity actually makes an appearance. That is to say, the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased as Jesus is baptized, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon the Lord Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, being the Son is to make him of the same substance as the Father, co-eternal and co-equal, and the Spirit is also co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Son, because God is immutable, He is unchangeable. If He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a trinity, a triunity of Father, Word, or Son, and Holy Ghost. To be clear, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three persons— and yet at the same time, there are not three gods. And Father, Son, and Holy Ghost aren't each one-third God, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and God fully. You say, I can't understand that concept, how there are three persons, but not three gods. There is one God and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they're not one-third God each. Well, I'm here to tell you, great is the mystery of godliness. You and I cannot understand the Trinity in our present, fickle, finite, sinful, temporal, human form. 
But we trust one day we will know even as we are known, and I believe in eternity, as we are there glorified, conformed to the image of his dear son, we will be able to understand and to enjoy God in the fullness. And what a marvelous day that will be. It would be an understatement to say that your mind will be blown when you see God as he is. This is the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, the God of Christianity. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, the ancient of days, God Almighty. He is to be worshiped and praised forever and ever. Amen. We believe in the true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.